The core philosophy is a of a startup. You look at the world as it is and identify how it can be better and then make it happen. Welcome to Tech Talks, the podcast brought to you by Nash Squared and hosted by myself, David Savage, that's been bringing you the latest thinking from technology leaders for over eight years. On today's show, our guest is Paul Jackson, Chief Product and Technology Officer at the likes of Level, Structure Flow, Dow Jones and News UK. And we're also asking whether or not Minority Report is becoming a reality and should smartphones be banned in schools. And to help us pick through today's podcast is Akish. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Lunchtime on, on Wednesday. What you had for your lunch? It is lunchtime. Do you know what? I've actually had a earlier br- what a, a brunch so a late brunch bre- a late on a work day yeah late breakfast early lunch so had a... did you get up in a bit of a hurry or so no i didn't i just didn't really fancy eating anything in the morning to be honest i don't i don't really have breakfast um so yeah just uh yeah just had a bit of a brunch very nice that was it yeah i assume you've seen minority report i have seen minority report correct yeah yeah, you know the bit uh, where there's someone's eyeballs are scanned and it's used to identify them and then they get lots of like adverts and uh, retail stuff mm. directed at them. Uh, members of the public are now being invited to have their eyeballs scanned by a silver orb as part of a cryptocurrency project that aims to use biometric veri- verification to distinguish humans from AI systems. Which I think is probably the way things are going at the moment. Like, <laughs> and also <laughs> quite terrifying. Yeah. I, know. I mean, it, it, don't get me wrong. Come and get your eyeball scanned uh, just so we can work out that it's not an AI marble or a robot and um, it's actually a person. So Yeah, yeah it's, it's WorldCoin. <laughs> it's being launched by the CEO of uh, ChatGPT, developer OpenAI, so Sam Altman. Mm. And the scheme will distinguish between verified humans and AI. People signing up to the WorldCoin scheme via an app this week will receive a genius grant of 25 tokens, which is the equivalent of 40 quid. Now, look, <laughs> they say that... This is, you know, about privacy and, uh, you know, it will prove that you're a unique and real person. Mm. Um, I'm not sure for the price of 40 quid that I want my eyeballs scanned and given my identity over to a company who are obviously they're doing interesting things in the world of AI. But I don't know. I'm not a Luddite, but I'm, I'm a bit I'm a bit hesitant. Mm. Uh, yeah, I would be if I'm completely honest, you know, up until... If I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not really into crypto and I've, I've been quite vocal about that in the past on here. Um, but I think, yeah, it's not it's not really one for me, to be honest, um, because where's that information going? And don't get me wrong, I mean, I'm no high fly, you know, individual <laughs> whereby, you know, my sort of eye scan can unlock buildings in the White House and rooms in bloody 10 downing street yeah exactly you know so it's not like anything can happen with them but it's just a bit intrusive really i'm not it's not it's not for me that it's yeah a bit odd but but what i would be keen on doing be keen on monitoring it because i'm sure that this coin will suddenly you know it will be absolutely in demand um and yeah world world coin coin, yeah and i reckon it's gonna you know cause some serious waves in the old crypto market well, let's see. We're talking about it again in three months' time. We'll have to refer back to this moment of you you being present. Yeah, correct. Once again. Anyway, to uh, two people who are mugging it, to someone who actually knows what they're talking about, we'll introduce our guest, Paul Jackson. As I said, uh, Chief Product and Technology Officer at a number of different companies. 
This interview is going to be exploring the health of the startup sector. Is it being constricted as well as the appeal of the early stage business? So today I'm joined by Paul Jackson. Uh, Paul, you are a chief product and technology officer, uh, have been in a, in a number of different organizations now, chief director, oh, sorry, director of products rather at Dow Jones. Um, you've been at StructureFlow and then most recently founder and chief product and technology officer at Level. So thank you for taking some time and joining us. It's great to be here. Look, our industry um, is, a, is a fairly broad church. Where do, you, where do you fall into it? What's your speciality in terms of sectors and experience? Sure. So um, I am a product manager by trade. Um, I've been in software and what they used to call digital all of my professional career. I started out in the early days of, I remember, the you know version one of .com, formerly known as .bomb. Uh, and at that point, I was a usability researcher uh, and very early stage uh, user experience designer when those terms were very new and un unfamiliar to most. Uh, and I graduated through a number of years as a user experience consultant and also working for agencies who at the time, uh, between sort of 2000 and 2010, were doing a lot of the digital work in the UK before startups really took over. Um, I was a practicing user experience researcher and designer for a number of years and got my first chance to jump into product uh, when I moved to News UK. Uh, around about 2010. Um, I had been aware of product management as a discipline, having been to South by Southwest, the infamous and extremely large uh, convention in Austin, Texas, every year where all digital folk come together. And quite a lot of products that we now know and love uh, were actually launched, probably foremost amongst them Twitter, was launched at South by Southwest in about 2005, I think, 2006. And so I'd met product managers there and, and, and knew that's where I wanted to go, but was waiting for my opportunity. Uh, and I got the opportunity uh, to become a product manager for the Times mobile app around 2010, 2010. Uh, so seized the opportunity with both hands. Since then, I've been in product uh, uh, for the remaining 13 odd, 14 odd years of my career. And uh, I've moved up through various levels from head of product management for the Times and Sunday Times, director of product for a number of new ventures at Dow Jones. So, you know, a media, big company focus. And then since then, I've been mainly working in venture. So back to early stage, zero to one uh, startups. I work with venture companies that really were looking for founders who were non-technical. So when everybody was doing startups around 2015, 2016, a lot of people were coming out of conventional and established industries and professions uh, and doing startups. So in the UK, that was predominantly people from financial services, people from the legal industry, uh, some, some people from the healthcare industry and doctors. And of course, they had the idea and the market and the vision, but they didn't have the technology expertise. So uh, we would work with them to provide both a team and product and technology knowledge and expertise, help them build their MVP, their V1, their V2, get them out of the gate and up and running, and then step away and move on to the next, the next idea or the next venture. So I did that for a number of years um, with very early stage founders. StructureFlow uh, was, was and is a legal tech SaaS that I started. And then since then, Level has probably been the most 
um, you know, the largest or most significant fintech that I've been involved with. Just out of interest, what's been the most enjoyable period in that? Because there's so many different experiences. What and I imagine different challenges and all interesting in their own right. But where do you where did you feel most at home? I think for me, the early stage has a unique appeal because it is so creative. I think I thrive most in areas where there's very little structure and little precedent and the most amount of agency. So I've noticed from hiring people to structure flow and level, uh, some of them came from very large companies like Microsoft. And the, the question is obviously, why would you leave Microsoft to join a tiny company like Level? And the answer is always, uh, what I call agency, but what normal people would call an ability to really make a difference uh, and affect stuff. I think there's a sense that if you work for a large company, you're really just a cog and whether or not you show up and what you do doesn't make a tremendous amount of difference and you can't easily see the consequences uh, of your inputs. Whereas at a startup, you absolutely can because uh, often the entire function or the entire capability uh, re revolves around you. And I think that's very exciting and appealing and is ultimately what um, has been appealing to me about startups. And it's an ability to go from what they call zero to one. So you start with a bank blank page and then within 12 months, you've got a product, you've got a company, you've got a brand, you've got customers, and you know that you've had a direct influence on that. You said a couple of minutes ago, 2015, when everyone was doing startups. Does that mean that, every, that everyone isn't doing startups now? I mean, again, joking aside, what, why do you think we are with the market at the moment? Um, I think we are certainly in a more constrained period. Um, I'm not by any stretch suggesting that nobody's doing startups anymore. Um, but I am, I guess, my experience of that period, pre-Brexit, let's not forget, when there was a tremendous amount of people in the UK from all over, all over Europe, um, tremendous amount of startup activity happening and obviously lots of capital around and a lot of enthusiasm um, around new company creation. Um, we're not in that era anymore for the reasons I've mentioned, but uh, I still think there's areas where there's a lot of reasons to be uh, enthusiastic and hopeful, um, but those are more confined, I think, to specific sectors where the UK has a leading edge or an unfair advantage. So whilst there are startups um, still being created, and I would never discourage anybody from trying to do it, I think if I had any advice, it would be to focus, at least for those in the UK, it would be to focus on the sectors where we are perceived as leading edge or, or have an advantage. And one of those is fintech, and that, that's an area that you are quite bullish about. What... Why do you think that beyond just the historical context, because there has been some kind of talk about is, is London's position slightly under threat as a leader in that regard? Yes, um, I think there, there are still structural advantages that the UK has, which aren't easily uh, replaced um, or uh, imitated elsewhere that still persist. So our payments infrastructure our open banking uh, or our embrace of open banking uh, of what was then PSD2 and will soon be PSD3, European regulation, and obviously our uh, very buoyant financial services sector mean that we do still have a leading edge 
in terms of what you can do with payments uh, and things like embedded finance. And I notice from being at level that it is the UK is still seen as a pioneer in, in those regards. And I know that because companies like Stripe, another very large fintechs from predominantly the US, but also the Middle East, um, are always reaching out and looking for or trying to understand what we're doing here as, I guess, a harbinger of what could be done elsewhere. Um, I think the um, you know faster payments and the forthcoming new payments architecture, which is being introduced, uh, are absolutely critical. And open banking, I think, has is a story that's not really even started yet, even though it, it feels like a concept that we're familiar with. And I think the UK government uh, is going to double down on investing in these sectors because it knows it needs to leverage the very few advantages it still has. And new projects like the Digital Pound, which is forthcoming, uh, the central bank digital currency for the UK, uh, I think will continue to compound the opportunities uh, in that regard. There's also other encouraging signs like um, Andreessen Horowitz establishing their crypto office here in London is a great endorsement of the fact that they still see London as a hub for uh, financial and technology experimentation. And I believe there has been some um, communications from the government that they're happy to be pioneers of uh, crypto regulation that obviously would see all other countries working with the UK to see what works and what doesn't. So it's these kind of macro initiatives that I think are encouraging for fintech founders in the UK. Hey, look, just to be very blunt with our listeners, when we were, when we were prepare, preparing rather for this interview, you sent over some bullet points and you said fintech is just getting started. Now, you've referred to a couple of things there, digital pounds, some of the experimentation going on. Just expanding on some of those, where do you think, or sorry, why do you think we're just getting started in more detail and where do you think that might lead us? Well, I think we're just getting started simply because uh, what you can do with some of the fairly nascent technologies we've put in place uh, has still yet to be written in many regards. So the real potentials of open banking and what is now moving into open finance have not really even you know, we haven't really scratched the surface with what, with what could be done there. Um, CBDCs or central bank digital currencies obviously look at what a, you know, what programmable fiat currency could mean. So a fully digital public uh, money ecosystem where, you know, in theory, all money is digital, but still retains a lot of the uh, anonymities and confidentialities of cash that obviously would be transformative in, in, in how we work and um, how we interact financially. And I think no, you know, the UK is in a great position to really pioneer what that means on a you know, larger level. There's been some very early stage pilots in, in very small countries, but it really requires a country the size of the UK to crack what a, a true national rollout could look like. So that's, that's number one. Um, I think where things could lead are obviously that we can look at things nationally, but the true implications are when these capabilities become joined up or uh, connected internationally. 
and how money could potentially move between different nations. So that ability to connect fiat currencies on an international basis, which you can't easily do with physical cash, but you can certainly do with digital money, um, would be potentially transformative. And there haven't really been any um, applied instances of that happening as yet. So again, still quite abstract and speculative, but transformative in the long term. You said right at the beginning, I think this, this phrase was right, what they used to call digital, which I found <laughs> yes. quite intriguing because we still call it digital, right? What, what did you mean by that? What I meant was that uh, the agencies that I used to work for described themselves as digital agencies to differentiate themselves from more conventional forms of advertising. Now, obviously, print advertising or TV advertising was where was the heritage of the industry. And when the Internet came along, um, a small branch of these agencies called Digital sprang up, which over time took over and became as big, if not bigger, than the other forms of advertising. But all of those, I guess the context of that seems a little bit dated now. And what we now, you know, what we now know as startups, I don't think they think of themselves as digital. I think they might even use the term software, but even that sounds a little bit dated now, uh, although I still use it. Um, I think it's more to differentiate what is now the, you know, the, the normal economy of pro products and services um, rather than call them digital, um, because that indicates that uh, there's, you know, there are physical alternatives uh, to some of these, which in the cases of the majority of the apps and products that we use, there are not. They exist in their own space. It highlights the um, changing trends and fluidity of, of the sector, and especially where startups are concerned. If you had advice, and given the experience that you've got, to someone who's coming into the industry about how they talk about technology and interact with people to, that they might want to impress upon. What kind of terminology and how should they talk about it in a way that's going to get someone's attention so that they go, hang on, here's someone who, who's clued up, here's someone who's clearly interested and, and wants to get ahead in the, in, in, in the sector? Sure. So as a startup founder, as somebody that has recruited uh, a lot of people to startups, you're really looking for two or three capabilities. The first is uh, typically passion, passion for the space, passion for the sector, passion for uh, the product, ideally. And that would need to be evidenced by passion projects or something above and beyond what they studied at university or, or just do for their job. So it's now much more about you know, demonstrating that you have uh, a wide ranging interest in the space and are implementing it um, outside of you know, your typical the day job. The second one is independence of thought and an ability to act uh, preemptively or proactively. Um, the fear of a startup founder is always that you would recruit somebody uh, and they might have an amazing job like SVP of product at Google or something, but taken outside of the enormous organization, can they actually operate on their own uh, or do they need a huge team and an operation around them? Because there is, it's, it's hard to articulate just how different a startup is when there's no process and there's really no infrastructure from working in an enormous uh, enterprise or a tech company where 
you take so many things for granted and everything just works. So what you're always trying to assess is, is this somebody that you could throw in at the deep end and, and they were, they're a self-starter who can operate without a structure. Um, and then finally, is this somebody that has independence of thought, can be critical, can challenge the status quo, doesn't accept that the way things are is just, you know, the way things are done is the way things are, but is constantly looking at how they can mold and create and improve the environment around them, because that's obviously the core philosophy as a of a startup. You look at the world as it is and say, and identify how it could be better and then make it happen. And look, just as a last question, you talked about the fact that the startup sector in particular is perhaps slightly more constricted now uh, due to um, economic conditions and some other kind of political kind of situations, I suppose. And you've talked about how different the sector is than perhaps working in a corporate. But why would you, why would you uh, espouse working in, in startups? Aside, I suppose, from agency, which you've already touched on, What what is there about the sector that you think people should be excited about? Well, obviously the, the core startup dream that we've all grown up with that came out of Silicon Valley is obviously that you can start a company early and then achieve an exit of some sort, be it through acquisition or through IPO, and you know become very wealthy in a shorter period of time than if you'd worked for 30 years trying to achieve it. And that is definitely a key part of the dream. Uh, the second part is obviously that you can you have the opportunity to create and build something that makes a material difference in the world, and that can be part of your legacy that you leave behind. That there is a product, a service, a capability, or a utility that didn't exist and now does, and it's thanks to your endeavours. So, uh, added to agency, these are the three key compelling reasons I would say to join a startup, and uh, the. The weighting or prioritization of those is obviously dependent on the individual. Uh, the one thing I would say, because I think uh, we've all been a little bit, not deluded, but I suppose uh, taken in by the dream and the capabilities of a startup. They've been very sexy for a period of time. Um, the one thing I would say is they're not for everyone and everybody should be honest about what their priorities are and their preferences are in terms of working and in terms of you know the long you know what they want to achieve long term i have learned that outside of silicon valley getting you know achieving ex exits or liquidity events is much less predictable uh, and much less probable than it is in silicon valley where big tech companies tend to be uh, very acquisitive and effectively acquire a lot of the small startups in their ecosystem. We don't have that here. So the options to achieve an exit are much more limited and therefore your, your ability to actually realize the value may have been created is certainly not as, as likely as, as we might have been led to believe. Uh, and also it's working in an environment where there is no structure it is quite chaotic. And to be honest, there's very little or very few checks and balances on the individuals that work inside these companies. Uh, you know, means that the overall quality of the experience may be less than if you're working at some of these excellent public companies that have a lot of regulation uh, and, and obviously can attract excellent people uh, would lead you to believe. So if you don't mind chaos and you're prepared to accept that, uh, maybe not every founder is a brilliant manager or a brilliant operator or even a brilliant communicator, uh, then there's 
obviously a lot of benefit for you. Look, it's been a pleasure to speak to you this morning. Thank you for giving up some time and sharing your thoughts. Thank you very much for having me. Akesha, if you were to join a, a startup agency, the ability to be creative and to make a difference, I imagine that would be that would be what attracted you to a startup. Anything else that would kind of appeal? Um, the percentage of equity I could potentially get. Um, yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, fair. yeah, yeah. That would yep. be something that I'm very. You know, that about. is the yeah. dream. Um, but That's also, do you, do you know what? I, I, uh, weirdly enough, right? I mean, if if any of my bosses listen to this, I'm not looking to leave, just for the record. But if I was, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be pulled into a meeting. Oh, we heard you on this podcast. Is there anything we need to be made aware about? Um, but if I was to leave, then then I definitely think a startup with a bit more of a purpose. You know, not just a startup that is another. Yeah. No offense to the likes of Monzo, Revolut, you know, payment firm site, you know, or point of sale type things yeah fine cool get it but like you know something a bit cooler you know, with a bit more of a purpose and if it, if that purpose is from a either a sustainability or a diversity slant then yeah that that's what would really attract me to be honest because i think that's massive um at the moment and those initiatives can only be driven if they are backed by businesses and businesses that are being backed by you know a load of funding yeah Absolutely. No matter what the government might think, I think most people really care about the fact that the world seems to be on fire right now. Oh. So, Anyway, not to get political, uh, yes. Akish, should smartphones be banned in schools? Oh. Teenagers with cell phones, American, clearly, don't learn and use them to hide uh, or hide them under their desks. It's a daily chore to walk around classrooms trying to collect them, especially when they said they don't have them and put them in their mm. pockets. This is a this was something that I picked up in the Guardian, obviously, uh, about people suggesting that they should crank up restrictions, and teachers um, are, are lobbying to basically ban uh, phones in schools because whilst there is a benefit to learning, pupils' behaviour and attention spans seem to be. It's, uh, I mean, I, d I didn't know people still did that because that's what I used to do when I was at school. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was the, uh, it was the texting under the table. Uh, everything okay there, Akish? Yeah, yeah, just, um, you know, just, just scratching my leg, sir, you know, all this. Right. So here's something where actually old technology has a slight edge over new mm. technology. Right. So what phone did you have when you were at school? Because I had like a Nokia. Oh, no, I didn't even have that. I think I had a Philips. No, I had, I had a Nokia, Nokia 33 something I had, when I was like eight, 17, 18, but I had a Philips 7. Yeah, before. I, so I had a, yeah, I had a keypad phone as well. Yeah, so I had um, a Nokia 3310, I want to say, or 3330. And then and then, uh, I, then I had the one that um, you slide up, the little Samsung D500, the black one. Oh, yeah. I had the motor. Oh, my, my dad really. had that, and that, that was like that. That was a creme de la creme, you know. At one point, yeah, I didn't have it brand new. I had it second hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, very nice. Phone. So look, my point about the old phones having a slight edge on smartphones here, when you were trying to text under the under the desk, like you could get really quick texting on an old mm. keypad, in text speak. Like at one point, I remember our English language teacher, like actually testing how quick someone could text yeah. the message and see who could do it fastest yeah. because we were all really good at like three times on two, four times on yeah, five, yeah. one time yeah. on, you know, three. You, like, you knew which buttons yeah. to press to type out words really, really quickly. Whereas a smartphone, you actually have to look at the Correct. screen to hit the letter on the, on the, on the virtual yeah, keyboard. You do. But also I think, I think when it comes to schools and stuff, like 
just sort of going back to the point, I mean, I think everyone now, I think it's fair to say everyone has a smartphone, right? Like, yeah. whether or not... Or at least the, the majority, majority, the majority will, of yeah, teenagers, you would imagine, will have a smartphone. So should they be banned? In my opinion, and I'm going to sound really old school, I think yes, because... No, I agree. In yeah, the classroom. Because I just yeah. don't think there is no need to be in the classroom and be distracted. And, you know, if we are... And again, it takes you back to that age-old argument, right? And I'm sure there's probably some sort of conference, some sort of event happening this week or next week in London or in a big city around the world where they're talking about children and access to STEM and access to, you know, sort of um, kind of scientific courses which will help them get into technology or raise that awareness. But you can't yeah. ingrain that in a school where someone sat there on TikTok, like, you know. And also, there there is a point here about behaviours, learn behaviours into the workplace. Like, I have sat in our boardroom on multiple mm. occasions where someone has had to say, guys, phones on the table, face down yeah. in front of you, like, put your yeah. phones down, to senior yeah. leaders, like, mature, sensible, mm. good people at their jobs who get distracted by the phone in front of them. Oh, I've just got, just got to answer this. I've just got, like, you're in a room, you're supposed to be present, you're supposed to be paying attention to whatever's going, oh, yeah, no, no. Put your yeah. fucking phone down. Yeah. Like, and that, if you don't learn that in school, if you don't have the discipline to be able to put it down for 60 minutes whilst you're in, or however long a lesson mm. is nowadays, 45 mm. minutes, in a classroom, how are you going to learn that mm. when you're in a, when you're in a but, but I, environment? I mean, Christ, the amount of people who are probably on their phones during during virtual calls these oh, days. Oh, me included. I'll put my hand up. I'm guilty. Yeah, I'm oh, absolutely yeah, yeah. guilty of it. Right? Well, no, absolutely be. not. But, you know, there are times, and sometimes, I'm, I'm not going to lie, sometimes it is work-related, and... You know, I can reply back to an email quicker on my phone or a Teams message. Sometimes I'm checking the football transfer market uh, gossip or I'm checking the cricket yep. score or I'm, yep. you know, kind of doing some shopping or paying a bill and, and you know, that sort of stuff. I'm just picking it up and, and just scrolling. It because yeah. It's just what it's, I'm doing. It, it, it's it terrible, is, it is it? horrendous because we've almost ingrained ourselves to this just scrolling kind of behaviour. And I think with children especially, I think at that age, where you're so impressionable, you're so raw, right, in terms of building your personality, your intelligence, your knowledge. I just think phones need to be, you know, they, they need to be put away. We used to have um we used to have a teacher back in the day. I think I know there may be an article that you'll you'll sort of put up, but um we used to have a teacher, he used to have a amnesty basket. So yeah. at the start of the lesson, if you put your phone in um you qualified for a piece of fruit which was like an apple or an orange or a banana or something so you put yep. you put your phone in and you take a piece of fruit and he was like look you know that's the way of a a kid eating healthy at least they're getting a piece of fruit down him and also they put their phone away so um and then he'd give it to you at the end of the lesson mr abbey business studies windsor boys school yep. big up Shout out, Mr. Abbey. <laughs> he's, he's now the uh professional basketball coach for the ugandan uh national team weird that's a pivot. a pivot yeah yeah so i hope he still i hope he still tells them to put their phone down he does it but he's also listens to his podcast i might tag him in and uh because because he's <laughs> on my linkedin <laughs> brilliant um I, I do, there was one point as well that was made here because be, the article talks about kind of like how phones can be useful in some mm. certain contexts. Uh, but there is a teacher who talks about the fact that concerns about phones in the classroom it, um, around equity and practicality. You can't plan lessons around smartphone use 
because you have to make sure everyone has one, that it's charged up, that there's data available. Like, let's not forget, just because you've got a smartphone mm. doesn't necessarily mean you've got data. Like, data is the bit where it's, you know, the haves and the have-nots. Not every kid comes from a family where, where mum and dad can necessarily afford to have a, have a, have a contract where they've got unlimited data. Mm, exactly that. And... and... <sighs> Do you think it maybe makes the parity between children or socioeconomic type of backgrounds more if you allow like phones and stuff? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Is that you'd have to if you allowed phones and yeah. you use them and you use them in in the lesson yeah. in some way, you would have to ensure that the kids have all got the ability to charge them up and they come in with charged phones. Yeah. So I've only got like three yeah. percent or whatever. Um, and you've probably got to make sure that there's decent Wi-Fi, like freely available Wi-Fi throughout mm. the school. And I don't know about you, but my experience of school was an old Victorian building. Like it would be a yeah. nightmare to get, yeah. to get Wi-Fi through the school. We didn't have to. eating in after school, so let alone bloody Wi-Fi. You know, it, you know, <laughs> exactly. it used to be it, it used to be freezing. So you know, it's just it's just one of those things. Yeah. Um, but quite interesting one. If anyone here is an education, or anyone here is a parent. Yeah. Share your views. Mm. Why not? Bit of participation here. Should should phones be banned in schools? I'd imagine the vast majority would say yeah. yes, but I'd be very interested to hear any reasoned arguments for. We had a children's that. hackathon in our office yesterday, right? We did. Cipher coders, Elizabeth Tweedale of of this C- podcast. Correct. I'd be keen to see what what their take was. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the age is, but you know, what what, what do they do? Because I imagine some of the kids that they had maybe at the older end maybe did have a mobile phone mm-hmm. and what's their rules around it you know do they keep them or yeah. do they take them in before because they're doing a lot of stuff with technology they're making it cool making it accessible yeah we should tag her see what her thoughts are good plan look i've just heard akish's ring doorbell go off so one last quick thing long time <laughs> listener of the podcast andy hayes congratulations on your promotion well done andy hayes give us a shout out there we go look uh, we'll be back next week thanks for listening Paul thanks for being our guest Akish thanks for your time